Welcome to StoryCorps, Share Your Science. I'm Sandy Duick, a science communicator for the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, California. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Yasmin Shirazi, who's also at Ames. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you, Sandy. It's great to be here. In a Twitter post, you were quoted as saying, look around you, find your passion, make this world a better place. From what I know about your research, you are doing just that. You study the effects of weightlessness and radiation on bones and muscles in space. Also, your current job title is Space Biology Vertebrate Portfolio Lead. And before that, it was mission scientist on the International Space Station and hardware engineer. These titles are all just wows. So tell us more. Who are you? Let's start with space biology vertebrate portfolio lead. What does that mean? And what is space biology? So space biology is study of the biological mechanisms that uh, translate into how, how our bodies will behave on Earth or in space. So space environment is a little different than Earth. So on Earth, our bodies have adapted to 1G gravity, a normal environment where we can breathe, we're shielded from the radiation. However, when we go to space, there's no gravity. So our bodies have to be adapted to microgravity or weightlessness. There is also some radiation um, in or around ISS. There are other factors such as isolation. You know, when we um, launch into space, our astronauts are isolated from their families, from the rest of the society, and they have a very close group and, you know, very small group on ISS. So what space biology does is to study how each of these factors will impact our body and our brain, our skeleton, our muscles, our uh, behavior. So that's what, basically what space biology does. At NASA, we study different model organisms. So these model organisms can be as small as a cell, a bacteria, a virus, all the way to plants and all the way to rodents. So what I do as the space biology vertebrate portfolio lead is to work with scientists across the nation to basically perform their experiments on ISS. I worked with a very large team of people who consist of scientists, engineers, designers, operations specialists to make sure that we understand the science, we define the requirements, and we can successfully fly that experiment to ISS. And our uh, portfolio, the vertebrate portfolio, mainly focuses on rodents, which is in this case rats or mice. So your life journey began in Iran and now it's currently here in Silicon Valley. When did your science journey begin and were you interested in science, this kind of science as a kid? Yes and no. I was actually born here. I was born in the US, I was born in New York, but we moved back to Iran when I was very young, I think a month old, maybe five weeks old. Um, and for a lot of people who may or may not be familiar with the history, there was a revolution in Iran in 1979. A lot of people, including some of my aunts and uncles, immigrated to the U.S. or to Europe, in case of my family, to the U.S. in you know early 1980s. Um, and my parents decided to immigrate us also. That's you know when I was born here. 
But early on, they decided that they want to go back to Iran. So we moved back to Iran when I was very young uh, and I grew up in Iran. Growing up, I always loved science. Uh, my favorite topic in school was physics. I always thought I wanted to study physics or astronomy in college. Uh, you know, when I was in middle school, I would have my parents take me to the school workshops at night so we can, you know, set up telescopes and watch the stars. I would wake up at odd hours of the night and watch the shuttle launches, even though we didn't have, you know, when I was very young, we still didn't have internet. Well, older, we had internet, it wasn't strong enough. And then I would try to like find these uh, launch videos on random satellites, channels, channels and all. But again, you know, in Iran, there was no space agency. The idea of, you know, working for NASA was not real. Uh, but that was always my passion. You know, it was always on the side. And, you know, I always thought I would study physics or aerospace engineering in college. In high school, though, I started taking more physics classes. Then I realized some of it is too much theory for me. You know, I, um, I'm always a hands-on person. Uh, even as a kid, you know, I went and picked up my dad's soldering gun at some point. I think I was fourth or fifth grade to fix my mom's radio. And uh, my mom had this red radio, and I think she still has it. That's probably, that radio is probably as old as I am almost. <laughs> and then there was some time that that radio was not working. And then when you pulled the cable, it worked. And then when you let go, it didn't work. <laughs> so then one time when I got home from school, I picked up my dad's toolbox, you know, took out the soldering gun, and it started, you know, soldering the cable so that it works. My dad came home, and then there, it was like this scary moment. So you could see like... <laughs> His scared face, but at the same time, like this proud moment that, you know, I'm actually doing this on my own. <laughs> so I think, you know, at a, at a very young age, you know, I always knew I wanted to be an engineer. And then, you know, slowly I went from, you know, physics and astronomy to mechanical engineering, because like I said, I'm very much a visual person, you know, very much a hands-on person. And uh, mechanical engineering was the right fit for me. So my, my bachelor's in college was, is mechanical engineering. Now, somewhere somewhere along there, you know, when I was uh, 14 years old, uh, my parents sent me to, to the U.S. for a summer. Uh, I spent about two months here with my uh, aunt and uncle, you know, met some of my cousins for the first time because I'd never met them. And that was my very first time that I had traveled by myself, period, regardless of that, you know, traveling, you know, a couple of continents. So that was, you know, a very unique experience. You know, I was very much dependent on my parents. Um, I think the only place I've gone by myself was my grandmother's house, which was like five minutes away. So it didn't really count for anything. So I came here for a summer. And then I didn't know this is the summer I went back and I told my parents that I don't want to move here. I said, it was too hard. You know, I want to stay home. And that's it. So I started high school. school and, you know, it was two years later, my dad kind of played the same game again. He's like, Oh, you want to go there for the summer? And I was like, no, 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 I've got summer school. I want to take all these classes, get ready for college. But then said, well, you can go for a week or you can go for a month or you can go for however long you want. Just go. So then I came here and um, I think that was the biggest sacrifice that my parents did. You know, they let me move here, kind of make that decision on my own, whether I want to stay here um, or go back. And I stayed here for the summer. Um, I started school thinking that I would try it out for a couple of months and then decide whether I want to go back or not. But before I knew it, a year went by and, you know, I was doing high school here. 
that's kind of how I immigrated from Iran to here. Even though I was born here, I never lived here. So moving back here was kind of like immigration. So I had to learn the language, even though I was taking, you know, English classes growing up in school. It's just not the same, you know, when you're in, when you start in high school here, it's just a big gap that you're trying to fill. So those, those two years were, you know, lonely and difficult, but, you know, I got through it. You know, I'm very thankful to my family who uh, took care of me here when I was in high school. So I lived in Connecticut. I finished high school in Connecticut. And then uh, I applied to colleges. I went to college. And that's kind of how I ended up back in the U.S. or immigrated to the U.S. Did anyone special inspire you while you were growing up? I think a lot of people did. It wasn't a single person, but a lot of people did. I mean, my parents, they were always, you know, working really hard to um, make sure we have everything growing up. You know, we get the best education. We um, have, you know, we go to good schools and all that. But then one of my biggest inspiration was my grandmother. And that's kind of that goes back to you know what you mentioned in the beginning about how I found my passion. So my mom is the youngest of six sisters. So being the youngest, my grandmother spent a lot of time with us and we spent a lot of time with her. Uh, a lot of times we would stay at her house or she would you know, stay with us. And as far back as I remember, she always had knee pain. So she would always have a hard time, you know, going up the stairs, sitting down, getting up. Uh, you know, every time we wanted to get out of the house, we had to like kind of do this mental plan of like how we're going to drive where so that she has the least amount of walking and all that. And one summer, I think it was between eighth and ninth grade, um, she did a knee replacement surgery. So it was during the summer, you know, I stayed with her in the hospital for about a week or two when she was recovering. It was one of those moments that, you know, all my life I had seen this person struggle with one of the menial tasks that we do, which is walking. And then she was in the OR, in the operating room for a couple of hours. She came out with a huge scar on her knee. But then a week later, she was walking pain-free with, you know, all the physical therapy and all that. She was walking pain-free. And to me, that was just amazing. I, I, I was thinking to myself, was like, whatever those surgeons did in that room for those couple of hours, that's what I want to do. You know, that's what I want to learn to do because it helped someone that I love. It helped someone that I loved, you know, improve her quality of life and all that. And I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people. So that was called always, you know, in the back of my mind that, you know, I want to like pursue that, you know, something that I could help people, something that could help people in their you know day to day life. So then when I start mechanical engineering, you know, I took all of my elect elective classes in biomedical engineering. So, you know, bioinstrumentation, orthopedic mechanics. I, I was invited to uh, work on a research project early on as a freshman uh, that was redesigning and uh, making exercise machines more ergonomic. So all of it just kind of going back to that orthopedic mechanics, um, you know, helping people be, be more comfortable and all that. So with all that in mind, when I was applying to graduate programs, I was very specific on what I wanted to do. You know, I was looking for programs that either do orthopedic mechanics or joint biomechanics or anything, or injury mechanics, you know, anything along those lines. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, growing up, I was always amazed with NASA and the shuttle launches. You know, I remember 
one day I came home early from school. I skipped my last class so that I can, you know, come back and watch Columbia, which was a very sad day because, you know, it exploded. And, you know, I, I, I still remember that very vividly. Again, when I was looking at graduate programs, you know, I still had that in mind. And I found this one program at Texas A&M that Dr. Harry Hogan, my uh, PhD advisor, he was doing own biomechanics, orthopedic biomechanics, and he was also funded by NASA. And I was thinking, you know, if that happened, it's like best of both worlds. Uh, and it did. Luckily, it did. Everything fell in place. I, I, I got accepted. I met with him. We got along. We connected from that very first meeting. And that's how I ended up at Texas A&M. And my PhD work was looking at basically mechanical properties of the bone and how it's impacted by disuse or weightlessness. And, you know, these two, even though they're two completely separate lifestyles, they go hand in hand. You know, for someone, elderly people, you know, people who are osteoporotic, you know, spinal cord injury patients, that's all in the disuse category. But then when you also go to space, that's another disuse category because you're weightless or you're not, you know, those mechanical signals are not there anymore. I studied that for a very long time. And, you know, there is always biology involved, even though I was studying bone like a structure, there's all these biological uh, reactions and mechanisms that are, you know, ongoing underneath. So then when I finished my PhD, I felt like I still need to learn more. I did a postdoc in molecular biology, and that's how I slowly transitioned from being a mechanical engineer to a biomechanical engineer to a molecular biologist. That is quite a journey that you've taken so far. Thank you. Is it, uh, do you find it hard to be in both a um, engineering role and a scientific role? It seems that there's there's lots of consternation between engineers and scientists when designing a mission or building a spacecraft. Maybe you're in a unique role to sort of bridge that. And that is what a lot of people think, but I almost feel like it's a necessity to have both, you know, backgrounds. And that is also why a lot of the teams you see these days are multidisciplinary teams, because almost for every project, you need both of those. And I'll tell you a funny story, too, which is also, you know, it goes back to one of the people who've always inspired me. So when I was finishing my PhD, you know, starting my PhD, I thought I wanted to become a faculty member. But then as I, you know, went on and um, experienced the research, and then when I finished my PhD, I also uh, taught for a year. I taught freshman engineering for a year. And then I realized, you know, that is not for me. I want to do something else. All throughout grad school, you know, all throughout five years of my PhD, we were using uh, this one model called the Heinlein loading model that is developed at Ames. So Dr. Ruth Globus and Dr. Emily Mori Holton developed that at Ames. So for years, I was studying those papers and I was always citing those papers. And, you know, it was such a big deal that meeting Ruth Globus or Emily Muller Holton was kind of like meeting Neil Armstrong's, right? So, so a couple of years into my PhD, I met Ruth at a conference, and you know, we invited her to give a talk at Texas A&M a couple of years later. So then, when I was uh, finishing my PhD, I emailed her. I was like, "Hi, Ruth. Uh, we met at such and such conference. You probably don't remember me, but I'm wondering if I can come work with you." 
I was sure enough that she doesn't remember me and she's not going to reply to my email. But I had this other offer for a postdoc and I had to give an answer, but then it was kind of like off cycle. I hadn't applied for jobs yet, but it was such a good offer that if I'd said no, I may not have been happy. But then also if I'd said yes, I would always have this thing inside me that like I didn't look for anything else. But then I thought, well, you know, if I wake up tomorrow and they tell me I can do anything I want, what is it that I want to do? And clearly I wanted to work at NASA. Even though I'd been working for NASA for a couple of years with my PhD, I still wanted to work at NASA. So I emailed Ruth, uh, thinking that she would not respond, but then she responded the next day. And she was like, of course I remember you, but why are you emailing me? You're an engineer. I'm a scientist. But then, you know, Ruth being Ruth, the most amazing person, and, you know, she gives everyone a chance for everything. Uh, she's like, well, why don't we talk this afternoon? So then I had, you know, a couple of hours to frantically prepare for getting on a phone call with Ruth, whom I always uh, had a lot of respect for. So we talked that afternoon. And again, she's like, I don't know. You know, we're a biology lab. You're a scientist. I don't know how this is going to work. So eventually we decided that we're going to give it a try for a year and see how it goes. You know, if I fit in, I like them, if they like me. So I came out uh, to the Bay Area. I started a postdoc at NASA Ames under Dr. Globus's uh, supervision and mentorship. And before I knew it, I was doing a postdoc for you know, over three years. And, you know, it was just, you know, a perfect fit. After that, position opened up on the Rodent Research Project as a, for a mission scientist. And, you know, I interviewed and was hired as a mission scientist to work on rodent research, which is uh, the project that sends the experiments to ISS. And I think that's where I noticed how much separation and gap there is between science and engineering. And I think that first year or so was very rocky because it was kind of like the two groups did not want to talk together. They did not want to communicate. Engineers always think that the scientists will make everything difficult. Scientists think that, oh, you know, engineers will ruin the experiment. But it's not like that. You need, you need both. And, you know, four or five years later, I think I was able to basically show everyone, not to tell everyone, but just, just to naturally show everyone that, you know, the two disciplines need to work together to make everything and anything work. As a scientist, and an engineer. Do you have opportunities to work with high school students, undergrads, postdocs, young researchers? And if so, what do you tell them about pursuing careers in science and working at NASA? I do. And that's one of my passions. You know, working with the younger generation is uh, something I love and I value and I think it's important because growing up, I had some of those opportunities. And at some times, I didn't have those opportunities. Looking at, you know, programs that are available now, you know, all the internships for the high school students or like space camp. If I could do any of those as a kid, you know, I would have been so happy. But again, you know, because of, you know, where I grew up, immigrating and all that, I didn't have some of those opportunities. So I think giving those opportunities to younger generation is very important. So I do my best and, you know, I do my part to make that happen. The other thing is every time someone either, in, you know, in family, in, you know, friendship circles or at work, 
uh, finds out that I work at NASA, their first question is, well, what, what should I study to work at NASA? My response is anything you want. Because, you know, there's also this mentality that, you know, NASA only needs engineers and NASA only needs, you know, aerospace engineers. So I told them, I was like, no, NASA needs scientists. NASA needs, you know, psychologists. NASA needs architects. NASA needs doctors. You know, we we can use any discipline. So that's kind of my first answer to them. It's like, you go study whatever you love. You go study whatever that makes you excited because we can use all the disciplines that are out there. Working in a lab and, you know, working on different projects, there's always opportunities to hire interns, undergraduate students, graduate students, postdocs. I currently have a postdoc myself. Because of the pandemic, we haven't been able to have a lot of interns the last two years. And I think that's something that we all miss. You know, all of us who've been working in a lab environment, summers were kind of like the happy times where, you know, we would get a lot of interns Mm -hmm. floating around the buildings and all that. And I think we all miss that and are looking forward to get back to it. What excites you about coming to work now every day? And how has the pandemic affected your work, especially since we're just now beginning to come back to NASA Ames after being home for two years? So what excites me is the thought that, you know, what we're doing, the research that we're doing can help someone. You know, I always think back about my experience, you know, how I got into this field. And now a lot of the missions or experiments that we do on ISS or here on the ground, you know, we're looking at disease models. We're looking at countermeasures, which may not be on the market tomorrow, but in a couple of years, you know, the research that we're doing is the stepping stone to develop the next pharmaceutical countermeasure, to develop the next, you know, nutritional countermeasure. So thinking that, you know, that will help someone, it could be my family member, it could be my friend, uh, will excite me to go to to work, even though the work is hard, the stressful, and, and and I think every profession is like that. But I think the end goal is what makes me excited Can you please define what a countermeasure is? Yes, absolutely. So a countermeasure is basically a cure for something that has happened. Basically, you're trying to either reverse that reaction or you're trying to mitigate it or you're trying to improve something, right? For example, my area is bone loss. There is bone loss for various reasons. You know, postmenopausal women are known to uh, be osteoporotic. You know, a lot of the other models that I talked about, about, talked about spinal cord injury patients, you know, people who go through um, radiation therapy for cancer, you know, a lot of a lot of that causes bone loss. Now, we can either slow down, prevent or cure bone loss with uh, pharmaceuticals, with nutrition or with exercise. Any of that can be a countermeasure to what's happening in the bone. Has there been an aha moment in your job, something totally unexpected that you learned or you accomplished? That's a good question. I think the aha moment is usually how sometimes we try to over-engineer something, right? For and it could be it could be any problem. It could be, you know, any problem statement. And what I've seen routinely is that we make it more complicated and we try to over-engineer it. And then if you take a step back, you walk away from it for 
sometime and come back to it, then you have that realization that, oh, there could be a very simple solution. It's kind of like the classic, you know, NASA tried to make a pen work in space for so many years, and then they found that the pencil could easily work. So I think we, we go through a lot of that from our day-to-day work. In your career so far, what job has inspired you the most, uh, made you think differently about your life? No, I have a lot of respects for the astronauts. They have to go through a lot to go to space, do our research for us, and then come back. But then I think it's a chain. We can't do our experiments without them, and they can't do it without us, right? So, you know, we have a large team who prepares the astronauts to get there, but then they also have to make a lot of sacrifices, you know, being away from their families, going through a lot of training and all that. And I think they're doing that, again, for making humanity better. They're doing all that to improve science, improve engineering so that, you know, we improve our quality of lives here. That, that can be said for all of the scientists and all of the engineers who've been doing this for a long time. But I think the astronauts are kind of the extreme that you know, they sacrifice a lot to make all this happen. I always thought I wanted to be an astronaut. I even applied, I think, three or four times now. But every year or every other year, a new class is selected. And I read about them and I read about their past and all that. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't have a chance compared to these people. But you are so very, very passionate about your work. You're a passionate scientist and passionate engineer. Um, if you weren't these, a scientist and engineer, what else do you think you might be doing? If I weren't doing science or engineering, period, I think I would have, I would have been a nurse or a doctor, maybe. I can see that. You know, in high school, I spent a lot of time volunteering in the hospital. So my aunt, whom I lived with in high school, is a nurse. Because of that, I would spend a lot of time in the hospital with her. And, you know, in in the family, we've had a lot of people who've had long illnesses. You know, cancer has been, unfortunately, very common in my family. So I've also taken care of them a lot. So I think if I weren't a scientist or an engineer, that would have been my other passion. Because this is a podcast and there are no visuals to share with our audience, I'm going to make some assumptions about you and I want you to agree with them or disagree. Um, I sit behind a computer all day. Not every day. Some days I do and some days I'm in the lab. Do you wear a white lab coat? I do. (laughs) (laughs) I have no hobbies or outside interests. Science research is my life. Oh, no, that's not going to be healthy. I do have a lot of hobbies and interests out of the work. Let's see, I do love hiking. Uh, I, I do enjoy the nature. So any chance I get, I go hiking. I went to Everest Base Camp a couple years ago. So I think that was the longest hike I've done. <laughs> but um, I also do uh, cycling. I have a road bike. I, I love to get out there and bike. And up until a couple of years ago, I did martial arts. So for about half my life, I trained in Shotokan Karate. All the way in high school, undergrad and grad school, I was training for 10, 15 hours a week. And I was competing and everything. But I think I, it was too much and my knees can't handle that anymore. So I had to <laughs> slow down and stop. Well, the research you're doing will help yourself someday. <laughs> exactly. I hope so. <laughs> 
I believe we're alone in the universe. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure there are other types of lives um, elsewhere. In my family, I'm best known for. Oh. Stubborn. <laughs> Independent. Well, that, that gets you to where you want to be. Those are good yeah. qualities. <laughs> In my work, I'm best known for. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious to find out. But outspoken, maybe? Sounds like you're good at bringing people together. Right. Yeah. Making making that bridge between you know, scientists and engineers. That's what I do on a daily basis. This has been a fascinating interview. You are so interesting and inspirational. Thank you so much, Yasmin, for taking time to chat with me today. Thank you. It was very fun. And thanks for the opportunity.